Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. We're so thrilled to have you here at the Schuyler for the seventh annual Harrisburg Book Festival. My name is Alex Brubaker, and I'm the manager here at the Schuyler and director of the festival. We really hope you've enjoyed your time at the festival from the outdoor tent sale, the authors, the signings, the discussions. We've really enjoyed hosting, and we're really happy you're here with us tonight. Before we get started, some quick guidelines about the festival. Uh, first, please take a moment to silence your cell phones. Um, and then afterwards, for the signing line, the entire festival is free and open to the public. Um, but to gain entrance to the signing line, we just ask that the author's new books be purchased through the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. We have many, many of the author's uh, copies of their books available at the cafe counter, and we want to make the festival a sustainable part of Harrisburg's future. So thank you for your, for, for your support. Now, we are here this weekend, of course, to celebrate literature. We're here to celebrate the written word, the exchange of ideas, the transformative power of narratives, of knowledge, and the almost magical ability of books to make us more empathetic, kinder, and to expand our worldviews. But we're not just here to celebrate books in and of themselves. We're here to celebrate a physical space and a literary community of readers, writers, and authors. We want to bring these two ideas together, the power of literature and the power of a strong literary community. That's what the festival is about. Now tonight, we have a very special program with one of my personal favorite authors. I've been nerding out about this event for months now, so I'm especially excited that we're here in Harrisburg to talk with the one and only Stephen Chbosky. But first, let me tell you a little bit about our speakers here this evening. Our moderator tonight is Stuart Landon. He is a producing artistic director at Open Stage of Harrisburg and the director of community engagement for Midtown Cinema. Born in Oakey, reared a Texan, and schooled a Sooner, Stuart is a proud resident of Midtown Harrisburg. Stephen Chbosky is the author of the multi-million copy best-selling debut novel, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. In 2012, Chbosky wrote and directed an acclaimed film adaptation of his novel, starring Logan Lerman, Emma Watson, and Ezra Miller. He also directed the acclaimed 2017 film Wonder, starring Julia Roberts, Owen Wilson, and Jacob Tremblay. Of course, the novel we are here for this evening is Chbosky's long-awaited second novel, Imaginary Friend. It's been called Unputdownable, and it's been compared to the best of Stephen King. I'm going to leave you here with two of my favorite blurbs about the book from Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. He says, if you aren't blown away by the first 50 pages of Imaginary Friend, you need to get your sense of wonder checked. <laughs> and the last one here is by actress Emma Watson. Like the perks of being a wallflower, Imaginary Friend says that no matter how the dark places you have been or the things you have seen, no one and nothing and nowhere is beyond redemption. What is astonishing and laugh-out-loud genius is that Chbosky has disguised all this wisdom in an entertaining thriller. In true Stephen Chbosky style, he gives you the bran and the donut, spiritual enlightenment and horror. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. It's a masterpiece. Please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Stuart Landon and Stephen Chbosky. Thank you, everybody. Um, Oh, wait. First, I want to do one thing, just because I'm, uh, my wife couldn't come on tour because she has the kids. And we do, I haven't done this yet, but this crowd is so amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go like this, and I'm going to go one, two, three, and then you're all going to say, hi, Liz, and then you're going to clap. Okay, will you do that for me? Please? Give me some points, damn it. Okay, here we go. 
because <laughs> I go, how's it going, honey? She's like, oh, it's, yeah, you know, it's seven and four-year-old. It's going great. Okay, so, uh, all right, here, wait. You ready? Okay. So thank you. You just made my homecoming way better. All right. So oh, that's right. I'm supposed to silence these. Okay. So uh, thank you all for coming. I'm very moved. I love your town. My God, I've never been here. It's crazy. I'm from Pittsburgh, like three hours that way, I think. And um, and uh, I'm just blown away by the community. Your movie theater is amazing. Uh, I, I've heard uh, stories about the regional theater and what an amazing community. And uh, uh, bravo and, and being uh, so cool. Um, so, thank you all for coming. It means a great deal to me. Um, I, 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 I'm sure you're all here because of the Perks Me Wallflower, I would imagine. And I'm happy to answer all questions about whatever you want to talk about. I'm happy to do that later. Um, I also have a special surprise about Perks a little bit later as well. But, um, uh, <laughs> good murmur. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, wow, a murmur, no less. Um, so, uh, but, you know, when I was making the Perks of Being a Wallflower movie, um, I fell in love with writing the book kind of all over again. I loved making the film. I was very proud of it. Um, but it just, I don't know, it just it reignited the passion for words, and I wanted to write another book desperately. So when I thought about, all right, what do I really want to do? I, I didn't really want to do, like, a Perks 2 kind of thing because I felt like I did that. And I was like, what other genres do I love, like genuinely love? And, and I went back to childhood and I thought about horror. Um, Stephen King is my favorite writer of all time. I am very moved that Joe Hill, his son, gave me that wonderful blurb. And by the way, I can assure you here, he read more than 50 pages. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know for a fact. Um, but, uh, and so, but I wanted to do it, you know, all the things that people maybe know of my work, whether it's Perks or Wonder or whatever, or Beauty and the Beast, like, I do things with a little bit of heart, and, and I'm known for doing things about emotion, so I wanted to kind of figure out a way to combine heart and horror and, and do it in a way that I've never quite seen it done before as a tribute to my hero, Stephen King, um, but also as, as, as a kind of a thank you to all the fans who have supported me over the years. So that's what this is. So I'm going to read two little parts. Um, one will establish some heart, and then I will give you some horror, and I hope that you enjoy them. So this is the heart part of Imaginary Friend. Um, and I think it'll be self-explanatory, this part, but all you need to know, as I lost the page, fantastic, all you need to know is there's a little boy, Christopher, and his mom, and they just fled a very abusive relationship uh, that his mother was in in Detroit, uh, near Detroit, Michigan, and they've settled in the small town of Millgrove, Pennsylvania. And this moment right here with his mom, and it, so she just, she just finally, thank God, got a job in this little town that they've settled in, and, and things can settle in and be better. So here he is. <clears throat> Christopher's mother sipped her beer on the rocks. Oh yeah, by the way, uh, she was bummed out that her beer was, uh, her beer was warm, and uh, so he, put, he went down to the ice machine in the, in the motel and, and put, it, put it on the rocks, and she laughed. Okay, so Christopher's mother sipped her beer on the rocks and made yum-yum sounds until her son beamed with pride for his clever, if somewhat misguided, solution to her warm beer problem. After her lottery numbers came up short again, she tore up the lottery ticket and put a DVD in the old player she got at a garage sale back in Michigan. Hear me okay? Am I getting the mic okay? All right. Um, 
the first movie started. It was an old musical she loved as a kid, one of her, one of her few good memories. Now, now one of his. When their feast was done and the Von Trapp, and the Von Trapp family was safely in Switzerland, they opened their fortune cookies. What's yours say, Mom, he asked. You'll be fortunate in everything you put your hands on. In bed, she thought and did not say. What about yours, buddy, she asked. Mine is blank. She looked. His fortune was indeed blank, except for a series of numbers. He looked so disappointed. The cookies were bad enough, but no fortune? This is actually good luck, she said. Really? No fortune is the best fortune. Now you, have to, now you get to make up your own. Want to trade? He thought about it long and hard and said, nah. With the negotiations over, it was time for the second movie. Before the film had finished and the good guys had won the war, Christopher had fallen asleep on her lap. She sat there for a long time, looking down at him, sleeping. She thought back to the Friday night movies when they watched Dracula, and he pretended he wasn't scared, even though he would only wear turtleneck sweaters for a month. <laughs> I did that. Um, there is a moment childhood ends, she thought, and she wanted his, this moment, I'm sorry. There's a moment childhood ends, she thought, and she wanted his moment to happen a long time from now. She wanted her son to be smart enough to get out of this nightmare, but not smart enough to know that he was actually inside one. She picked up her sleeping, she picked up her sleeping boy and took him to, the, to his sleeping bag. She kissed his forehead and instinctively checked to make sure he didn't have a fever. Then she went back to the kitchenette. And when she finished her beer on the rocks, she made another just like it because she realized she was going to remember this night, the night she stopped running. It had been four years, four years since she found her husband dead in a bathtub with a lot of blood and no note. Four years of grief and rage and behavior that felt out of body. But enough was enough. Stop running, stop smoking, stop killing yourself. Your kid deserves better. So do you. No more debt, no more bad men, just the peace of a life well fought and won. A parent with a job is a hero to someone, even if that job was cleaning up after old people in a retirement home. She took her beer on the rocks and out on the fire escape. She felt the cool breeze, and she wished it weren't so late or she'd play her favorite Springsteen and pretend she was a hero. As she finished her drink and the last cigarette she'd ever light, she was content, watching the smoke curl and disappear into the August night and the beautiful stars behind that big cloud, that cloud that looked like a smiling face. Okay. So these two, these two characters, it's kind of them against the world. And they have survived a lot of things together. And so I mentioned a cloud there at the end, and the cloud is very important. The original idea of this book came from an image and a thought. Remember when you were, we were all kids, we'd all look up in the, uh, you'd look up, you'd lay on the grass, you'd look up in the sky and you'd see the clouds. We all did it, and you'd say, oh, that looks like a dog, a hammer, a face or whatever. So my idea was, what would happen if a little boy looked up in the clouds and realized that for the last two weeks, it was always the same face looking back at him. And I thought, ooh, that's kind of creepy. I kind of liked it. And so, so, and then because I, I, I do movies and I write screenplays, I, very often I think in scenes or I'll think in trailers. And I thought of like, oh, how would I introduce the cloud? How would I do it? And I thought of a trailer moment. So I will read you this. This is the first scene that I wrote. And I wrote it in my head long before I ever committed it to paper. I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. When the bell rang, Christopher's teacher, Mrs. Henderson, walked Christopher to the parking lot. Christopher waved goodbye as she and her husband got in their old minivan. His teacher, Ms. Lasko, got in her cherry red sports car that must have cost a million 50-cent milks. One by one, the teachers left and the students. 
The twin brothers, Pirate Parrot and Two Moms Mike, threw their little plastic footballs they got on the school bus. Special Ed blew a raspberry from the bus, which made Christopher smile. Then the last buses left, and when everyone was gone, Christopher looked around for the security guard, but he wasn't there, and Christopher was alone. He sat down on a little bench and waited in the parking lot for his mother to come pick him up for Movie Friday. He tried to think about that instead of the bad feeling he was having, the feeling that something could get him. He was nervous waiting outside, and he just wanted his mom to get there early today. Where was she? The thunder clapped. Christopher looked at his math test, four out of 10. He had to work harder. He picked up his first book, A Child's Garden of Verses. It was old, kind of dusty. Christopher could feel the spine creak a little. <clears throat> the leather cover smelled a little like baseball gloves. There was a name in the front cover written in pencil, D. Olson. And just a quick word about D. Olson, that is David Olson. In the prologue, we meet this little boy 50 years ago who went missing in a place called the Mission Street Woods, which we were about to uh, encounter. D. Olson. Suddenly, a shadow cut across the page. Christopher looked up and saw it drifting overhead, blocking out the light. It was that cloud face, the one from the last two weeks, as big as the sky. Christopher closed the book. The birds went silent, and the air got chilly, even for September. He looked around to see if anyone was watching, but the security guard was still nowhere to be seen. So Christopher turned back to the cloud face. Hello? Can you hear me? He asked. There was a low rumble in the distance, a thunderclap. Christopher knew it could be a coincidence. He may have been a poor student, but he was a smart kid. If you can hear me, blink your left eye. Slowly, the cloud blinked its left eye. I cannot wait to film that. I can't even wait. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Christopher went quiet, scared for a moment. He knew it wasn't right. It wasn't normal, but it was amazing. A plane flew overhead, shifting the cloud face and making it smile like the Cheshire cat. Can you make it rain when I ask you to? Before he got out the last word, sheets of rain began to pour out over the parking lot and make it stop. The rain stopped. And when Christopher looked up, the clouds started to drift away, leaving him all alone again. Wait, Christopher called out, come back. The cloud drifted over the hills. Christopher knew he shouldn't, but he couldn't help himself. He started walking after it. Wait, where are you going? There was no sound, just sheets of rain, but somehow it didn't touch Christopher. He was protected by the eye of the storm. Even if his sneakers got soaked from the wet street, his red hoodie remained dry. Please don't leave, he yelled out. But the cloud face kept drifting down the road to the baseball field, the rain trickling on the clay cake dirt, dust like tears, down the highway where cars honked and skidded in the rain into another neighborhood with streets and houses he didn't recognize, Hayes Road, Casa, Monterey. The cloud face drifted over a fence and above a grass field. Christopher finally stopped at a large metal sign on the fence near a streetlight. It took him a long time to sound out the words because of his dyslexia, but he finally figured out they said, Collins Construction Company, Mission Street Woods Project, no trespassing. I can't follow you anymore, I'll get in trouble, Christopher called out. The cloud face hovered for a moment, then drifted away off the road behind the fence. Christopher didn't know what to do. He looked around, he saw that no one was watching, he knew it was wrong. He knew he wasn't supposed to, but Christopher climbed under the construction site's fence, snagging his little red hoodie. Once he untangled himself, he stood in the field, covered in wet grass and mud and rain. He looked up in awe. The cloud was huge. The smile was teeth, a happy smile. Christopher smiled as the thunder clapped, and he followed the cloud face off the cul-de-sac, down the path, and into the Mission Street woods. Now, quick word. I thought of that moment a long time ago, 
And the entire metaphor of this book for me personally was the idea of falling in the cloud. I had, when I started this book, I didn't know what the cloud was. I didn't know what the friend was. I didn't know anything. I just, w I had to understand what he was following and what would happen. So this is the first moment I thought after I and Christopher started following in the cloud, I will share it with you and then we'll have a lovely Q&A. Okay, so here we go. This is, I hope, I pray, <laughs> the horror part for you. Okay. Because <laughs> if at the end you're like, I, what? I don't, anyway. <laughs> I think it's good. All right, go with me. Okay, here we go. So chapter six. Christopher looked up. He couldn't see the cloud face anymore. That's how thick the trees were. He could still hear the rain, but not a drop fell to earth. The ground was still dry, cracked like old skin. It felt like the trees were a big umbrella, an umbrella keeping something safe. Christopher. Christopher turned around. The hairs on his neck stood up. Who's there, he said. There was silence, a quiet, shallow breathing. It might, might have been the wind, but something was here. Christopher could feel it, like the way you know when someone is staring at you, the way he knew that Jerry was a bad man long before his mother did. He heard a footstep. Christopher turned and saw it was just a pine cone falling from a tree, thump, thump, thump. It rolled down the ground and landed on the trail. The trail was covered by tree needles and a few twisted branches, but it was unmistakable, a trail worn into the earth by years of bikes and ramps and races, by kids taking shortcuts to the other side of town. But now it looked abandoned, like the construction fence outside had kept the kids away for months, maybe even years. There wasn't a pair of fresh footsteps on it, except one. He could see the imprint of a shoe in the dirt. Christopher walked over and put his little sneaker next to it. They were about the same size. It was a little kid's footprint. That's when he heard a little kid crying. Christopher looked down the trail and he saw that the little kid tracks went on for a long, long time. The sound was coming from that direction, far away in the distance. Hello, are you okay? Christopher yelled out. The crying got louder. Christopher's chest tightened and, the, and a voice inside him told him to turn around, walk back to school and wait for his mother. But the little kid was in trouble so he ignored his fear and followed the footprints, slowly at first, cautiously. He walked toward an old creek with a billy goat bridge. The footprints went through the water and came out the other side. They were muddy now. The little kid must be close. Help me. Was that a voice? Was it the wind? Christopher picked up his pace. The little kid tracks <clears throat> led him past an old hollow log that was carved out like a big canoe. Christopher looked ahead of him. He saw no one. The voice must be the wind. It didn't make sense to him, but there was no other explanation because he saw nothing except the light. The light was far down far down the trail, bright and blue, the place where the crying was. Christopher began walking toward it to help the little kid. With every step, the light got bigger and the space under the trees got wider. And pretty soon, there were no trees above his head. Christopher had reached the clearing. It stood in the center of the woods, a perfect circle of grassy fields. The trees were gone and he could see the sky, but something was wrong. He had gone into the woods a few minutes ago when it was day, but it was nighttime now. The sky was black and the stars were shooting a lot more than usual, almost like fireworks. The moon was so big that it lit the clearing, a blue moon. Hello? Christopher called out. There was silence, no crying, no wind, no voice. Christopher looked around the clearing and saw nothing but the trail of footprints leading to the tree. It stood in the middle of the clearing, crooked, like an old man's arthritic hands, reaching out of the earth like it was trying to pluck a bird from the sky. Christopher couldn't help himself. He followed the foot footsteps. He walked up to the tree and touched it, but it didn't feel like bark or wood. It felt like flesh. 
Christopher jumped back. It hit him suddenly, this horrible feeling that this was wrong. Everything was wrong. He shouldn't be here. He looked down to find the trail again. He had to get out of here. His mom would be so worried. He found the trail. He saw the little kid tracks, but there was something different about them now. There were handprints next to them, like the little kid was walking on all fours. Crack. Christopher turned around. Something had stepped on a branch. He could hear creatures waking up all around him, surrounding the clearing. Christopher didn't hesitate. He started to run, following the trail out. He reached the edge of the clearing, back into the woods, but the minute he stepped under the trees, he stopped. The trail was gone. He looked around for it, but the sky was getting darker. The clouds were covering the stars now, and the moon was shining through the cloud face like a pirate's good eye. Help me, Christopher called out to the cloud face, but the wind moved, and the cloud covered the moon like a blanket. Christopher couldn't see. Oh, God, please, God. Christopher fell to his knees and started digging through the pine needles, frantic, looking for the trail underneath, the needles sticking to his palms. He could hear the little kid now, but it wasn't crying. It was giggling. Christopher found the trail with his hands and began to crawl on all fours. Get out of here faster. That's all he thought, faster. The giggling was closer now. Christopher started running. He moved so fast that he lost the trail. He ran in the darkness, past the trees. His legs buckled when he stumbled into the creek, past the Billy Goat Bridge. He fell and ripped up his knee, but he didn't care. He kept running, a full sprint. He saw the light up ahead. This was it. He knew it. The street light. He had somehow found the street again. The giggling was right behind him. Christopher ran faster toward the street, toward the light. He ran under the cover of the last tree, and he stopped when he realized he wasn't in the street. He was back in the clearing. The light was not the street light. It was the moon. Christopher looked around and could feel things staring at him, creatures and animals, their eyes glowing, surrounding the clearing. The giggling was closer, louder. Christopher was surrounded. He had to get out of here, find a way out, find any way out. He ran to the tree. He began to climb. The trees, the tree felt like flesh under his hands, like climbing arms instead of branches, but he ignored the feeling. He needed to get higher to see a way out. When he reached halfway up the tree, the clouds parted. The moon made the clearing glow, and Christopher saw it. On the other side of the clearing, hidden behind the leaves and bushes. It looked like a cave mouth, but it wasn't a cave. It was a tunnel, man-made, wood-framed, with old train tracks run in the ground running through it. Christopher realized what that meant. Train tracks led to stations, which led to towns. He could get out. He climbed down the arms of the tree. He reached the ground. He felt a presence in the woods, eyes on him, waiting for him to move, and Christopher ran. All of his might, all of his speed, he felt creatures behind him, but he couldn't see them. He reached the mouth, and looked into the tunnel. The train tracks went through it like a rusty spine. He saw moonlight on the other side and escape. Christopher ran into the tunnel. The wooden frames held up the walls and ceiling like a whale's rib cage. But the wood was old, dilapidated, and rotting. And the tunnel wasn't wide enough for a train to pass through it. What was this place? A covered bridge, a sewer, a cave, a mine. The word hit him like water, a Pennsylvania coal mine. He saw a movie about them in class, miners using handcarts and rail tracks to bring out earth to burn. He ran deeper, racing to the moonlight on the other side. He looked down at the tracks to get better footing. That's when he saw the little kid footprints were back, and the giggling was back, right behind him. The moonlight faded ahead as the clouds played hide-and-seek. The whole world went black. He groped into the darkness, trying to find the walls to guide his way out. His feet scraped the tracks as he reached out like a blind man, and he finally found something. He finally touched something in the dark. It was a little kid's hand. And then... Pardon my film director. I love doing this. One word, dead center of the page. And this is how this chapter ends. Christopher was not seen or heard from for six days. There you go. Thank you.
Thank you. Oh, yeah, you want to move? Yes. Now. Thank you. Well, when I read this book, I have to say that the end of that chapter really got to me. And it is so, it is so cinematic, the way that you put the words on the page. Like the, the use of fonts in your book, yes. I think is cool. The use of... Uh, Thank so, you. And also, just congratulations on this fantastic book. Thank also, you. I appreciate it very after, much. At, and 20 years, though, returning to your second novel. Tw 20, 20 years, years, yes. Isn't that fantastic that he's back for another one? So well, You're I a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. Oh, well, that's it. It's yeah. really yeah. good. That's it. That's you know, the you end. know what? Your questions are tough but fair. I yeah, love this. This figured. is really good. Really good. <laughs> I'm Barbara Walters of Central Pennsylvania. <laughs> If only. So I, I actually, so I noticed a lot of themes in the um, in this book really did overlap very much with um, with perks that they that, that there's a lot of similar similar things. But the notes that I wrote down, you know, for me it was like, you know, the mysterious friend, the yep. uh, coming of age, the idea of underdogs. Yes. The uh, and of course I think unique children with special learning abilities. Yes. I think also that was uh, so. I'm, you've got, I imagine, a crowd of... Are you guys Perks fans, I'm assuming? Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, um, but, I mean, I, so they're gonna, I think they're going to really like this book. Don't, I mean, there's a lot of overlap here. In fact... Well, yeah, no, I, I did it that way because, not, uh, look, I love horror, and I love Stephen King, but my wife, Liz, um, whom I met because of Perks in this really roundabout way that I'm happy to talk about if you'd like to talk about it, um, she doesn't like horror at all. Oh. So when I wrote this, I had to do it in such a way... Because cause I'm not going to spend years of my life writing a book and not have her love it. You know what I mean? Because that, that's kind of a waste of time. Sure. You know, um, in terms of, because she's kind of everything to me. And so, and so, uh, so when I wrote it, it was, I was like, all right, well, people know me a certain way. And that's why the heart and the horror, it's, it, I just felt like I'm always going to write about underdogs. I'm always going to write about kids. Mm. I'm always going to write about, you know, certain type of, memories that we have and things that that unite us and 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 uh, I'll write about PTSD and other things but but I said okay so I'm going to do all of that mm -hmm. but just this way mm. so I I'm going to I I thought it wouldn't be great to have life or day life and death stakes which horror does when I love that about it yeah. but if you really know the people and you really care about them um, then it's even better mm -hmm. uh, in in a way so so that's I concentrated 100% on that so yes if if you like perks um, I, th I think that so far, at least, you know, yeah. knock wood, but so far people that love perks, they love imaginary friend and I'm very grateful that they do. Yeah. So, so you are from Western Pennsylvania. Is that yeah, right? I'm from yeah. Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah. Pittsburgh. So the, um, and this book is set outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. It's set in the, the little town of Mill Grove, yeah. which is, uh, basically my fictional, uh, name from the town I grew up in. Hmm. And I, when I was making the perks of being a wallflower movie, it was illegal there was like some kind of a legal thing. I couldn't call it Upper St. Clair um, for some reason. So I was like, huh. So I thought, well, Mill Grove came from Mill Valley. 
So mill, you know, Castile Mill. And then my wife is, uh, she her favorite place in the world is Ocean Grove, New Jersey, because she's a Jersey girl. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll do Mill Grove. And so it was, oh. it was that combination. And so when I did that in Perk's movie, I was like, I think I'll kind of make that like my version of... Uh, you know, dairy or something yeah. like uh, it'll just be my Pennsylvania town. Yeah. And, and, and the one part I talked about where Christopher's walking down Monterey and Casa yeah. and, and all those things, that's, that's Charlie's neighborhood. Yeah. They, they actually, Charlie's house is here. And then you go this and you turn right up Monterey and that's Christopher's house. What an, so you're building a universe here. That's fantastic. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of am. It's yeah, really you, strange. You really are. I that's, never thought about yeah. it that way, but thank you. Yeah, no problem. That's hey, that's what I thought when I read it. So the um, uh, so Entertainment Weekly described Perks uh, versus Imaginary Friend as heartwarming versus chilling, which I thought was really kind of neat. And um, and indeed, there are elements of this book that are truly frightening. Um, so thank you for that. You're welcome. I love scary. Um, this, I mean, this this is literary horror, very different, very different genre. And you, you described how it's this the, that there's similarities, of course, too. But why why horror? Well, it was it was a first love. I mean, growing up, you know, I love Stephen King. I already mentioned, but you know, my a lot of the movies I really loved when I was was kind of uh, developing my love for cinema. It was John Carpenter's Halloween, and it was Night of the Living Dead, and Dawn of the Dead, because George Romero was such a hometown hero, and uh, you know The Shining and The Exorcist and everything else, and then a little bit later, Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. It just I just love the genre, and I think that when it's done really well, um, it, it's among some of the great stories that we'll never forget, and and uh, you know. So th- I think that's why it was, it was to me it was very it felt very comfortable. Like I love coming of age novels, mm-hmm. so I wrote the Perks of Being a Wallflower in that tradition, yeah. and I love horror stories the same way, uh, yeah. as passionately, quite frankly. And so I just did the same thing, just kind of my way. Yeah. But the thing was, and this is what this is what I love about it is, but you can't do it. I felt like you can't do it. Like I don't want to do it gory, and I don't want to do it. You know, I don't like you know exploit it. I don't like that. There's there's a really cynical, cheap way to do it, and I didn't want to do it that way. I want to do it more like. I remember being a kid, like three, four years old, and like Hansel and Gretel, the idea of the witch and Hansel and Gretel scared mm. the hell out of me. It was, it was my <laughs> imagination took over, and I was like, oh my God, that, is that real? You know, when you're three. So I thought about, all right, wouldn't it be fun to take, take situations that we all know, like the clouds, we all know that, and just say, okay, but what about it this way? Mm-hmm. Or there's a moment, one of my favorite moments in the book, this doesn't spoil anything is we all, you know, nowadays it's like with DVR and Netflix, there is no such thing really as Saturday morning cartoons per se, but we still all have that, you know, we have that feeling, Oh my God, it's Saturday morning, no school. I'm going to sit there and watch uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Okay. So you're sitting there and you're watching cartoons. I thought, how cool would it be if like he's watching Christopher's downstairs, watching the, the television and he's seen the rerun like 10 times and it's this thing I created called Bad Cat and Bad Cat's just doing his thing and then suddenly he stops and he turns to the can- he turns to the TV and goes, oh, hi, Christopher, are you enjoying the show? You know, and I thought, oh, that's kind of good. And he's just like, hey, buddy, you're my number one fan. Thanks, buddy. Hey, um, listen, uh, who told you about the skeleton, buddy? And right. And then it's just like, you know, if so, if you don't tell us who told you and who's helping you, um, Something bad's gonna happen to your mom, and then he says, well, "What's gonna happen to her?" He says, "Well, if you don't tell us, mom's gonna." And his voice trails off. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Oh well, if you don't tell us, your mom's gonna. And he's just like, I can't hear you. He's like, you gotta turn up the TV, and he takes the remote and turns it up. Yeah. And and then Batcat says, "Oh no, not on the remote, on the TV, buddy, or else it doesn't work." Come on, 
just come to the TV and just turn up the. So I was like, all right, I'm like, I'm uh, yeah. edge of my seat. I don't know what this means, but like, it was so fun to you think You wrote of, the thing. I know. What I mean is, I didn't know what it meant at the time. Sure. I just was like, I'm yeah. following the cloud. I'm telling yeah. you right now. And then later, my editor was like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> so I was like, sorry, Wes. No. Luckily, I had a really good editor. Yeah, no, that's incredible. So it actually really, the, the, the whole book, in, in some ways, I think made me very nostalgic. I grew up in, in Oklahoma, and my backyard was a woods. Definitely not in any way similar to the woods that you created in this novel, thankfully. Um, but... Um, I guess I, my question for you is, that did you, what from your childhood did you infuse into this novel? Uh, let's see. Um, a lot of memories of being a little boy, um, a certain group of friends that I had. Mm -hmm. I created this character, Eddie Anderson, um, uh, and you know all the kids in school call him Special Ed. He's my favorite. Oh, you like Special Ed? I Thank do. you. You know, because Special Ed was kind of, in a lot of ways, based on certain memories I had of this kid, Eric Olson, up the street, who would show mm. up. He was always late to the bus. And he always had bacon, and I never understood why. <laughs> and then, and I, but I loved him. He was my friend, and we we'd hang out. And he uh, he uh, I remember one time when he was like three, he somehow got or four, he somehow got his dad's car keys. This is true, and and <laughs> got in the car. <laughs> And, and drove it across the street into the neighbor's yard. Mm -hmm. And this little kid across the street who I, then later used to babysit, Mike Reese, and that's where the name Reese came from. Mm -hmm. um, he, for uh, literally a year, he wouldn't go to his front yard because, uh, to quote him, he was like, whatever, three. No, 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 that's where cars go. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I remember just that street, and I remember these kids, and I loved them, and, and all these just memories of the woods behind my house and the deer that were everywhere. And, like, look... You guys are, I mean, you have woods everywhere and the deer everywhere here too. It's like, you know, when you're younger, it's like, or, you know, when you see one deer, it's kind of like, wow, that's magical. When you see like a dozen, you're like, okay, they're terrifying, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so um, <laughs> I wrote about that. But I have to say the biggest thing probably, uh, part of my childhood that scared me um, when I was a little kid and I wrote about was probably being raised Catholic. That would be the number one <laughs> thing. It's kind of like Hansel and Gretel and like, Oh, by the way, if you misbehave, you're kind of going to burn. Like these two things was like, wow, really? And going to confession and, and being like this, I guess I have to confess something and making up lies for my first confession. Like, well, I hit my sister, which I didn't. And I'm like, what am I doing here? So that's where the character of Mary Catherine McNeil was born. Yeah who is one of my favorite characters I've ever created. I wish I'd thought of her in time for Perks because she would have absolutely yeah. been uh, in, that, in that school. Yeah. Um, so yeah, good old Mary Catherine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Fairy tales versus the Pope. Let's yeah, to... kind of, yes. Jeez. Yeah. That's a... So <laughs> you've obviously been quite busy since um, publishing Perks of Being a Wallflower. So it took you a little while for this, for this novel. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you did some stuff in between. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I did mostly movies. You know, it's funny going back in my life. You know, it's strange how a moment can change everything. Mm -hmm. Where I'm 12 years old. This is a true story. And I always I want to be a baseball player, and then I wanted to be a writer. And that was the only two things I've ever wanted to be are those two things. And when I'm 12 years old, I, I went to my dad and said, after you know the baseball, I was like, ah, I'm too slow and and short. It's never going to happen. So I said, uh, Dad, I want to be a writer. And I meant to say novelist, but I said writer. He said, Well. Great writers are great readers. And then he kind of left the room uh, to smoke cigarettes and watch the Penguins. Um, because my dad was a really big reader. And like, look, he's my hero. I take what he says as gospel. So I say, um, okay, well, hmm. He knows I'm a slow reader, which I am. That's part of the dyslexia thing. I'm a slow reader. 
So I don't read a lot. I play sports and I watch, he knows I watch movies on HBO. Oh, well, I guess I read movies. All right, I'll write movies. Because I didn't take it as like, go read more books, Steve. That's yeah. what he meant. To, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that was what he meant. What I took it as was like a, a statement of fact, frozen in time. And sorry, kid, too late for the novel thing. So figure <laughs> it out with movies. And so I'm a born novelist yeah. that spent my entire career studying movies. And it's so interesting because when I wrote Perks of Being a Wallflower, I considered it something of a fluke. I was like, well... I don't know where that book came from. I mean, I have some things, of course, and, and it, it came in a special time in my life. But I thought, well, I'm glad I did it once, and now I'll get back to writing movies. If I had a time machine, I would have I would have flown back about 21 years ago when that book was done and be like, you idiot, write more, you know, do more books. And yeah. um, and I'm so glad to finally be back. And it yeah. won't take another 20 years to do a third, I'll tell you that. Well, we're happy about that, aren't we? Already. So do you find that you're process as a writer and I'll maybe be as I'll be specific as when you're writing your novels that that your process has changed uh you mean from screenplays to novels uh no between when you wrote perks and when oh you wrote. completely yeah. yeah listen you know when I wrote the person being wallflower I was 26 I finished it when I was 28 I had I wasn't married I had no children and I would smoke cigarettes back and I've quit that thank god but I could stay up 18 hours a day. You know, mm. it took me four months to write Perks Being a Wallflower all in spread over two years. Mm. So it was a furious kind of like outpouring, you know, um, uh, you know, obviously imaginary friend is longer, but also I have so many more responsibilities. It just, my process had to change yeah. just to accommodate like, cause I, I wasn't going to, I will tell you this, I wasn't going to write another novel and have it like not be, not be special for the people who've supported me over the years. So it, I put a lot of pressure on myself to just go over it again and again and again and again and, and not, not rest until I thought it was really, really special. Mm. So it, it kind of, you know, I do this thing. If you ever saw it, you would think like I was like John Doe from seven, but I have, I have this document I call napkin notes. I used to be on napkins and now it's just, it's a word doc. And you know, like when you're, we have, we've all had this experience, you're reading a book or you see a movie or a TV show and you go, ah, oh, you know what? If they just would have done this, they would have got away with that bank heist or mm. you, th you hear something funny or you think of a funny thing. Oh, that made my friend laugh. So I had this list of these. Uh, and what I would do is whenever I would think of something, I would, I would categorize it. Horror, crime, noir, funny character, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'd have all these buzzwords so I could, you know. And this thing is like 12,000 pages long over the years. I've been doing it for decades. Wow. So whenever I start a new project, like Imaginary Friend, I would just do a word search horror. Oh. And here are 170 pages of just random horror things or <laughs> things that are interesting or childhood or memory or Pittsburgh or Catholic mm. or whatever. And I would do all of them and I would look at like, and it really was, it was like, oh, that's completely related to that. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a way of, of using all of the you know, the very free association that we all have in, in a practical way. So I started with that and then and along with the idea of the cloud and I just kind of like kept m working the pieces yeah. over and over, almost like an improv class until I had something. The final version of the book, I literally read out loud to, uh, you know, started it, my assistant, Kelsey Scott. Um, she's an amazing writer and, and I'm pretty soon I'm not going to have an assistant. I'll tell you that. But <laughs> she, um, she, I would read it out loud and so I'd read it and then I would feel her shift. Like when you got, when I was reading this thing, I was looking to see, are people shifting in their seats? So they bored. Should I speed up? It's just, I guess maybe, you know, you're in theater. You do that a lot. Mm -hmm. Just working in movies, you look for these signs. And yeah. so I would read it and then I would feel her shift and I go, what? 
what's wrong? Mm-hmm. She's like, well, I'm just kind of confused about that. I go, great, thanks. And then I would solve the problem and I keep yep. going. Yep. Yeah. That's great. Well, I think you did create something special. So going Thank back you. to it. So you, if, you, if you haven't read it, you're in for a treat, just so you know. Um, but the, uh, I guess I, I also wondered, like, do you have any rituals as a writer or traditions as a, as a writer? Um, yeah. Um, coffee. <laughs> that, that, that's my ritual. And I really love, you know, the one thing that I, I love to set an atmosphere. I love music. And, uh, and whenever I write, when I wrote Imaginary Friend, I have this big collection of vinyl records. I love vinyl records. I wrote about it in the Perks movie. It's so, it, I, I just, I, it's my favorite way to listen to music. So I have this enormous collection of, of soundtracks, movie soundtracks. And so I would write Imaginary Friend for the most part to horror soundtracks. Oh. I'd put on side one of Night of the Living Dead, write for 20 minutes, yeah. flip it, 20 minutes, John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, over and over and over again. I, I, wrote, I wrote this book to... Those two records, and then, um, uh, you know, basically, you name the classic horror thing. Yeah. If it has a vinyl soundtrack, I own it. Golly, the Halloween soundtrack, that's the true anxiety as you're writing. I would have, that would be me anyway. I mean, I'm a huge fan of that whole franchise. Yeah. The, um, uh, but well done. I like that. Those are Thank wonderful you. traditions. Thank um, you. So, talk to me about, um, about adaptation. So, you adapted your own work and then and directed it for mm-hmm. a film, and then you adapted somebody else's work, uh, Wonder, and anybody, anybody see Wonder, anybody? Yeah. Pretty good, huh? The, uh, and then, so th- talk to me about the responsibility, I think, when it comes to uh, the responsibility of adapting someone else's work versus your own. Well, you know, I don't, because I love the book, so I felt a lot more pressure doing The Person Wallflower than I felt with Wonder, because mm-hmm. it was the first one and also, I, I, I've received letters from fans for so many years, and I know what it meant to people. I've met people yeah. out in the world, and so I was like, I really felt like I couldn't mess it up for them, even way even more for, the, for myself, because, because I knew it was special to people, and I said, okay, I have to figure out a way to do this, but I also knew I really wanted to do it. I mm-hmm. wanted to film the tunnel desperately. I wanted to just, I wanted to be at that secret Santa party mm-hmm. and I, fe- I kept feeling it over and over and over again. So, so I felt a lot of pressure there. Wonder I didn't feel it much at all. I mm. mean, I, I, I just love the book and I thought, you know, I, I, I know because of my experience with Perks being a wallflower, I know what a good movie adaptation can do for a book mm-hmm. in terms of sales and, and all these other things in terms of access to schools. And because I thought that wonder was genuinely, you know, uh, I want it to be in every fifth grade classroom in the world. It teaches empathy in this really wonderful way. And so I said, oh, you know what? All right, I'll give a year of my life to this one. Mm. I only have so many years, but like this one totally deserves my utmost attention. But I got to work with RJ Palacio, who was incredible. Yeah. And and the actors like Julie Roberts and Owen Wilson were amazing. And, and the kids were just, be, it was just, it was really special. It was a very blessed time. And, um, and so I love making that movie. I love serving that story. Yeah. And I was so proud that, that the year the movie came out, it was literally the number one selling book in North America that year over everything. And, uh, and she went from 6 million copies to 16 million copies in a year. Mm. And so I was like, yes. And so if it just keeps getting taught in middle schools or, or elementary schools, then, then I did my job and that's all I want to have happen. Do you think that your film work in the last 20 years has effect, affected your writing for Imaginary Friend? Oh, completely. You know, I, I do write very cinematically because that's all my training is in. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I do want to make the, the film version of this, but I didn't write it to make the film version of it. I wrote it to write it. But like all of my 
I think more in fragments because that's mm. what movies are. That it's like pieces of film stitched together. Like don't get me wrong, I'll read The Great Gatsby and I'll see and I'll read his lyrical prose and I would love to emulate it, but I just I don't have any of that. That training is not mine. Yeah. I think of in terms of this period capital and and I just list because that's I guess that's just the director brain at work. I suppose. Uh, what uh, projects are you looking forward to? Um, well, I mean this, of course. Um, but uh, the the uh, you know I've done some musicals uh, as a screenwriter. I've done two musicals, and this is my first chance. I'm so excited. Uh, there's a great show. I don't know if it's traveled here or not, or if anyone's gone to New York to see it. But like it won the Tony a couple years ago, Dear Evan Hansen. So I love Dear Evan Hansen so much, and it was really cool because I wanted to direct it, and they 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 let me do it. And so I hope you know um, Hollywood is Hollywood, and you know, it, things are it's so crazy. Because but there's a very very good chance, and I'm I hope it happens that I'm going to be on a film set hmm. uh, directing Dear Evan Hansen in like May. Wow, that's so exciting! Yes, yeah, I love because that show is so great. Yes, it is, and and it was really fun. I, I it was fun to walk into Universal Pictures, and, and when I was going for the job and saying, "Well, I spent the last twenty years of my life doing two things: musicals and like uh, sensitive portrayals of young people." So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they said, "You're hired." I said, yeah. "Great." <laughs> anyway, it's really exciting because Ben Platt's going to be Evan and. I, we're just I, it's, I, I can't wait wow. to, to, to help him immortalize the, that performance he, he is driving all of us not literally but like he we wanted we want this for him sure because he's a great great person oh my gosh and an amazing performance amazing oh my gosh um, so uh, you talked a little bit about your favorite horror films um, uh, do you have other favorite films beyond the horror genre? Oh yeah, I, I, so many. I, I love uh, Dead Poets Society is probably my favorite movie oh. of all time, um, and I was very moved because Tom Schulman, who won the Academy Award for writing that screenplay, he was he really liked Perks of Being a Wallflower, and uh, and he he did uh, the Q and A for the Wonder uh, for the WGA. He's a wonderful man, and um, he sponsored me for the Academy, which I was became an Academy member last year, hmm. um, which was a real honor, and he sponsored me, so I was like, wow. Um, nice. Yeah, Dead Poets Society. I love Once. I love Sideways. I love The Graduate. I love Harold and Maude. I love uh, Tommy Wiseau's classic, The Room. Um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, of course. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, some of the Marvel movies are amazing. I think Dark Knight's amazing. Uh -huh. The Matrix is one of my favorites of all time. And you name the musical. Cabaret is my favorite movie musical of all time. And the list goes on and on and on and on. I mean, you know. Yeah. A great movie is is just fantastic, and I'm I'm really I'm really lucky guy that I get to direct movies because not everybody does, and it's 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 really cool to to you know every time to step I'm like trying to do something special, and so yeah, I, I, too many influences to name, quite frankly. Oh, that's awesome! I'm geeking out because you're listing off musicals. <laughs> yeah, um, well, yeah, yeah. So and we talked about Fun Home for like an hour downstairs. Yeah, we did. Yeah, it's, yeah, we did. yeah. Um, so. A lot of uh, a lot of people have drawn parallels um, with Stephen King, uh, with this one. You know, the the group of the group of uh, young young boys uh, with and um, the life in a smaller town. You know, talked about creating your own dairy when it uh, comes to Mill Grove. Um, so, uh, I, I and you said earlier that the Stephen King, you listed off several Stephen King movies. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess you're a Stephen Stephen King fan. Yeah, he's my favorite writer of all time. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't think that we've. I don't think America's ever had a better pure storyteller. Mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, uh, I think he should win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And just because what he does, to me, I'm going to make a strange comparison because stylistically they're nothing alike. But in terms of the impact on an audience, they're exactly the same. Shakespeare and Stephen King. And here it is. Who else, like when Shakespeare in his day, the, the poorest people went mm-hmm. and, and the richest monarchs went mm-hmm. and they all loved him. Yeah. And they all were taken by the storytelling and by this language and by this imagination of, of, of language and these characters. Um, because the stories he didn't invent, uh, Shakespeare. It was like, you know, there was a Hamlet four years before his Hamlet. So he would write it his way, his adaptation. And, um, and people, it didn't matter. Rich, poor, uneducated, educated, highly educated. And to me, that's what Stephen King is. I've loved him at 12. I loved him at 22, 32, 42. I'm going to be 50 in January. I love him now. And, and just like the Beatles, they're another one. The Beatles is the only band I can think of that you love when you're eight and you love when you're 80. Mm-hmm. That's a trick. There are very few people that can do that, and he's one of them. And so that's why my hat goes off to him. And, and every, you know, I know a lot of writers sometimes when they're compared to other people, they're like, no, don't, I'm, I want to be the only me or whatever. Um, I'm like, I'm honored every time. It is, it is amazing. Uh, uh, compliment to be, you know, I'll, I'll be in his margins. I don't care. That's how good <laughs> I think he is. And in some of my favorite books of all time, um, my favorite is, is the stand, oh. but there's so many other great ones. Oh my gosh. And the stand, cause when I did the TV show Jericho for CBS, that was my tribute. Cause I, I was co-creator of that show. I wrote the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my tribute to the stand. Mm, brilliant. And that was a brilliant show too. Oh, thanks buddy. Yeah. The, um, so uh, before we move on to the Q and A, um, there was uh, another interview that you did, and I really appreciated this, and I thought this group might enjoy this. So that you have a, a four-point plan for those who want to create art. I don't know if you recall oh. that. Yeah, because you know, I, I loved it, it because it, oh, I, okay. I wrote it down. Oh great! So, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I'll ha- wow. Uh, curveball. Um, <laughs> so uh, how many writers are here? Is it a few? Okay. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. okay. Um, so, okay. I'll make it really quick because yeah. there's only a handful. The four-point plan was this. is like one thing I've learned about artists, and it's true of writers and it's true of actors, is like talent and taste are actually not even remotely the same thing. Hmm. They're just not. How many good actors have you seen? We've all seen it. And they're like, why'd they do that movie? Hmm. You know, and, and, and because talent and taste has nothing to do with each other. So my four point plan was, it was about aligning your talent and your taste. It was like, right, step one is write down every idea you have. It could be a page, a paragraph, a single sentence. Like I've always wanted to do my version of the Goonies or whatever. Um, but it has to be every idea. It's very important. And then you register Step two is you register with the Writers Guild of America East for like 40 bucks. You can protect yourself for 10 years. Step three is share with five to seven people, no less than three, no more than 10 people. Um, uh, No frenemies. Like it's very important. People whose taste you trust, who want you to succeed. Okay. And step four is you listen to your friends because I can't tell you here, I'll, I'll do it this way. I can't tell you talent and taste. So let's say you have two ideas. You have, you have cap and you have water bottle. And you're and, and I do it like a math. I, I liked math, believe it or not, when I was a kid. So I was like, okay. Um, I usually I usually say this to like young people. I say, all right, how old are you? I'm 20. Okay, how long does it take you to write something really really good? They go, well, if I'm lucky, a year. I go, okay, so you got 60 shots. That's what you have. You have 60 chances to to um, you know because you're going to get distracted by other things, and other things are going to happen. 60 shots. Now 
you're about to spend one of your shots on water bottle because you know this is your best idea. And if five out of if most of your friends say, actually, I don't care about this at all. I love this one. And you think this is so small and, and insignificant. Who would think that, that a, a story about like a, a freshman in, in high school would, would be the one for me? I've written a lot of things, and that's the one. And I'm hoping now to add the two. And, and so, and I did this thing. So what I thought was, what I'm trying to encourage everybody to do, whether I'm talking about what musical you direct, or if you do a movie, or you write a book, or you write a poem, whatever, to just, if you do this, over and over and over again, your chances of writing the one is a little bit better. And now it's, and your really smart friends will go, you know what, but I, they'll say, hey, I actually know why you want to write this because the father character here is great. Um, why don't you put the father in this? And suddenly your best narratives, best ideas to find your best characters and your best titles and the appropriate genre. And sometimes you take two ideas like I did with Perks. That's how Perks was born. I had two different ideas and I put them together you know, you could say like, I have this really cool idea, but I don't have a hook. And they go, oh yeah, what about the Goonies thing? And then Stranger Things is born. It, it's that thing of like putting it all together, your best self, and as a way to, to reach out to other people. And I, it's changed lives, it's changed careers. And so, yeah, I love to share it whenever. So that's the fastest way I can say it because I know there are a lot of non-writers in the room, but, but yeah, that, that, that's the four point process. I think all of us can learn something from that. So thank you very much for that. That's good. Yeah. So uh, Alex is over there with the microphone, and I think oh great, we're gonna, yeah, they're going to take some questions from. We're going to transition to the audience Q and A portion of the event. So raise your hand, and I'll come around with a mic. We'll start here in the front row. Uh, by the way, can I just say something really quickly? And I don't want to cut you off. So no, I'll do it later. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't know if you can answer mine. So if you can't, just wow. skip it. And I don't know if there will okay, be Okay, next question. <laughs> Go ahead. In, in the acknowledgments, you thank Stephen King, but you also thank Emma Watson. And yes, you say I did. that she inspired the end on the perk set. Yes, yeah, so we were, filming, we were filming the Secret Santa party. Um, and we were in that living room set, and we were broke for lunch. And we're sitting there, and we were just sitting together. And just the two of us. And I, she's like, what are you going to do next? And I start telling her about Imaginary Friend. And I'm, I'm just telling her the story. If so, then the boy follows the cloud into the woods. And then the little boy's hand, or the little kid's hand. And then this happens, and that happens. And she's on the edge of her seat. I, I got her. I'm so excited, because she's really, she's an incredibly well-read person. She went to Oxford and Brown for English. And so I'm like, wow, I really got it. This is amazing. And then I go, and then I get to the ending. It was almost like a jazz hands moment of like this, of like this. And then, and she went, Huh. And I was like, what? No good? She was like, huh. Because she's so polite and British that she'll never, <laughs> she'll never tell you, like, to translate that to, to Pennsylvania, you know, Stevie, that sucks. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so I had to go back to the drawing because I knew she was right. I, I had her and I knew that the way that I was going to stick the landing was wrong based on her reaction. So that's why I thanked her in my book. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm a huge Perks fan. I've Thank bought you. like four copies of the book and have over the years given it to different people I've met and been like, you need to read this. It's touched me. Um, I was really excited for the movie and I have to say, honestly, I was a little disappointed. One of the things that I Aww. really wanted in the movie was um, to hear Landslide instead of Heroes in the oh. Tunnel because I love that song. I grew up listening to Fleetwood Mac with my mom. She took me to the movie. Like, you know, a lot. The book is just nostalgia for me 
Well, thank you. In and out. But yeah, I know you're going to answer because you know what I'm going to ask. But why did you change um, as like in the movie? Was there a specific reason you changed some of the music and that song specifically? I changed Landslide to Heroes because I thought that when I when I put the footage against Landslide, it was too soft. It didn't. I wanted I wanted an anthem. And plus, when I wrote the book, I had a very, very intense moment after the book was published that where that song heroes meant so much to me and so it's like it was just for me very you know it would take me an hour to explain why that i wrote the book to landslide i made the movie to heroes that's kind of what it is it's not and and i agree with you and i tried i also tried vapor trail i also tried a, a song called sway by this band spiritualized i cut a lot of different things and nothing worked like heroes i don't know why it just didn't so I'm sorry that you're disappointed. I tried, but here, here's the other thing. Here's the other no, but here's the other thing, and this is true. The the landslide I that I was talking about was actually the live version that came out like around '97, '8. So it was is what when she was just singing it. It's not the one from the from the original uh, record. So the original record one is much softer. It was it was the live version which didn't exist when they were going through that tunnel. So that's the really, I I listened to that song on repeat maybe 20 hours once. So much so that my roommates were like, are you you okay? And and I'm I'm finishing finishing the Perks book and I just, I was like in a thing. So I couldn't have the version I actually wanted because it wouldn't have worked. Well, I was thinking, I guess because Cornell Wilson's like, what about the Yeah. Well, listen, you have my full permission. (laughs) Take it out. in, in iMovie or whatever, and YouTube, slap on landslide, <laughs> throw it out to the world. I'll even like it, goddammit. And, and uh, you know, win win. All right, all right. All right. Okay. Question in the third row. Hi, so I'm actually from Mount Lebanon, so one town over from Mount me. Lebanon. Yeah. I, know, I, referen- I reference it in the book. Do you? I do, because, all right, let me tell you about Mount Lebanon. So, Mount <laughs> Lebanon. I'm from Upper St. Clair. We were, we were like, ne- th- thank you. Oh, hey, hey, Kim. Um, so uh, so uh, we were next door. And so my, there are two great schools, Mount Lebanon and Upper St. Clair. And my mom, when, when, when dad and she were looking to buy a house, she looked at those two places because of the schools. And then when she found out that Mount Lebanon didn't have busing, she's like, oh, F that. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so she chose Upper St. Clair. And so uh, you guys will love this. Every time there was a, like, a, like a snow day, you'd listen to the radio and you're like, God, please. And it's in the book. And like he's sitting there waiting for the snow day and be like this, you know, in Millgrove. Upper St. Clair school districts, uh, you know, uh, are canceled for the day. Mount Lebanon, three hour delay. You always got a three hour delay because they were like, oh, screw it. We don't have to bust these kids. Right. Come on, Trey. Like it was too cold to It was walk. horrible. Oh my God. Yeah. Legendary. So my, my deepest sympathy. <laughs> I know. And, uh, you know, but you know what? You have cooler restaurants. So, you know, all, all things equal. Um, but like, obviously that being said, um, so many of the uniquely Pittsburgh things are so special to me, like the laser show and the bridge scene. I worked at the science center. Are there any really uniquely Pittsburgh things that didn't make perks, didn't make imaginary friend that like you might want to get into a future book? I'm sure, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I moved away from Pittsburgh a long time ago and for whatever reason, it's like, I feel like James Joyce in Dublin you know, without the immortal talent. Um, like that, that I'll always write about it. I love that city and I love this state. And I, 
everything that I think about the world is kind of forged here. It, it's, it's in my bones at this point. Um, so much so that it's tough. Like one of the things about Dear Evan Hansen that's a challenge is like, you know, it's set in Maryland because that's where Stephen Levinson, the book writer's from. And I'm like, what is Maryland? Like, I, <laughs> how the hell am I going to make Maryland? Like, I don't know what that is. And so I got to go and go to Maryland and figure out how to make, you know. And so it's hard because in Pittsburgh, is, and I'll do it forever. You know what I mean? I haven't done the riverboats. I haven't done really much about sports all that much. And I'm a huge Steelers fan and, and all these other things. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, don't worry. You're from Mount Lebanon, and you're, you're, you're going to like my output for a long time, I hope. Question in the back? Uh, hi. Um, Hello. Uh, Fantastic bandana. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to rip really quick before my question. I wanted to say thank you for creating uh, Patrick. He helped me come out. So oh, good. I'm like glad, buddy. Thank so, you. Um, <laughs> um, so really quick, um, do you happen to... Have a, have a full playlist of like any of the tapes that Charlie listened to because I've been wondering about that forever. I only hear songs here and there. Do I have a tape? Do, do you, you have a playlist? Sorry. Uh, oh, oh, you mean that I've generated in like a Spotify or something, or do I personally own one? Oh, like if you were to tell me, like, yeah, do you have a like a Spotify playlist of some kind? No, you know, I never, I never did that. You know, maybe I should someday. It's uh, it's like I. Uh, I kind of collect songs, and I have I have uh, like like two thousand songs I really love, and I listen to them all the time. Um, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit later. No, I, the, the short answer is no. I've never done the Spotify list because I actually don't use Spotify or Pandora or anything, like because they don't pay artists nearly enough. So I still buy my songs on iTunes or CDs or vinyl because at least the artists get a little bit more. You know, and so maybe someday if they really pay, I'll switch over. Um, and whatever, you Spotify, I'm not, I'm judging nobody. That's probably why I haven't done it because I've never, you know, I just don't use those services. Oh, great. Hi. Hi. Uh, huge fan of your work. Thank you. Um, start of the talk, we were talking about some of the similar overlapping themes between Perks and Imaginary Friend. Uh, and one of them that wasn't mentioned, I think, is this theme of fear. I'm a high school English teacher. Uh, I believe ninth grade. I teach ninth grade English. Ninth graders are afraid all the time. Yes. Uh, and Charlie certainly, I think, has a lot of fear. Um, I'm curious why you continue, why you decided to come back to this theme of fear in adolescence uh, in this new book. What 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 about that emotion attracted you? Well, I, I guess it's something I relate to on some level. But also, I'll tell you this. Here's what's great about what's what's great about art. Is, is doing it and then also consuming it. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about one thing. Okay, so I used to have, a lot, it's great. So if you've seen the Perks movie, you've seen the part where Charlie remembers and then he begins his uh, panic attack. It's, there's one of him, cut to the past, two of him, cut to the past, three of them. So, and then he has all these memories and he's in his room, he's like, stop crying, and, and he, it's just all in his brain, right? And I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to film what a panic attack felt like. Because um, I thought, you know, I, I'm cinema trained and it's like something I experienced in terms of like panic attacks. And, and so I was like, and this is what's amazing about it. And this is why I go back to fear. So I did this. So imagine that. So here, here's the process that created that moment of, of cinema. So you write the, the book, you write the screenplay, you cast it, you film it. 
you you have to like set the props. There's a thing. What are they wearing? You're deciding all this stuff. Here's the room. Here's the this. This is what happened. And Helen, okay, take action, action, action. Do it over and over and over again. And then you have to edit it. And then you have to edit it again and again and again and again. And you have to score it and sound effects, everything else. What is amazing is by the end of the process of doing that over and over and over and over and over again is I never really had another panic attack as long as I lived. Because what I did was, it, it's, and actually, if you just mimic this, if you've had any trauma in your life, you have any kind of anxiety in your life, if you just like picture it, kind of like think about the process I went through, you make it this way and then that way. Now put it on a little TV. Now put it on a really small TV. Now put it huge. And now change the voices. And now that you just do it and you manipulate it, suddenly the memory, everything is still there. But it doesn't have the power anymore because I dressed the whole thing. And this is how crazy it was. When I went back after I did the movie and I went back to Upper St. Clair where I'm from and I filmed a lot of the movie there, I was as nostalgic about the movie that I made there as I was about my own life. And I realized in that moment what it gave me was I didn't have any more panic attacks. So that's why I write about fear. Like, uh, you know, um, I was terrified of those woods. And here, I'll tell you a thing. You'll love this because I'm going to put imaginary friend and what it gave me together. Okay. I said the Catholic thing, and I know it got a laugh, but it's true. And, and so I was genuinely afraid of the whole idea of this. So I created this character of Mary Catherine McNeil, all right? And Mary Catherine McNeil, who is a true believer, all right, and not to be mocked, in my opinion, because I don't particularly like mocking people who believe in religion. I, you know, that's just me. So Mary Catherine believes. So here's Mary Catherine, and we meet her. She's racing home. This is when we meet her. And it's 11.57 p.m., and if she is past midnight, she will lose her license, okay? And Mary Catherine is so Catholic that she has this thought, and she's a bright kid, but really overactive, kind of like my mind. And she's like, okay, if I, what would happen, wait a minute, if I sin, and before I can make it to confession, I die, am I damned? And it haunts her, this idea, because she, does, she just wants to do the right thing like a lot of us did. And so she's racing him, and she's so afraid of this that she made a deal with God in her heart. She said, okay, I need an early warning system that if something happens, if an event, some event happens, I will know that I've sinned so terribly that I have to write the ship, okay? So she, and it comes to her. She's like, if I hit a deer with my car, I, that will be my sign. I will know if I hit a deer with my car that, like, I'm damned and I have to write the ship, right? Okay. And this is an actual bargain that I made when I was a kid, okay? I don't mind admitting it because I was so afraid of being damned. Okay, so and picture little Mary Catherine. She's 17, and she's driving, and it's 11.58, and she's made this bargain, and she's so mad because she's driving. And she, went to the, she, went to the, uh, she went to the movies. She wanted to see the romantic comedy, but no, Doug, stupid Doug, her boyfriend, wanted to see a disaster movie. Like, we need to see New York destroyed again. She's so mad. She's driving home. She gets on the highway. She cannot be late. She's driving, driving, driving. She gets off the highway, and there it is. Like, and so everything is like 11.58, 11.59. So the whole chapter is built this way. And so in this pinnacle moment, she's driving, and there straight ahead is her house, and there's a crest of a hill, and there is the stop sign. And the, the, and the clock goes midnight, and she knows if she blows off the stop sign, she will make it home just at 12.00. She won't lose her license. She, her father won't be mad at her, and everything will be fine. But she's afraid of the deer, so she's like, what do I do, God? What do I do? And she prays, and then she like listens to her voice, 
and she pumps the brakes and she stops at the stop sign and then she looks up ahead and laying on the ground is the little boy that went missing for six days and if she had not stopped her car she absolutely would have killed him with the car so that writing that made me not afraid of deer anymore right that's why I talk about fear and that's also why I give it out to an audience or to a reader because how nice is it that we can share this information in whatever way we want to share it and so yeah that's why I write about fear to stop being afraid Oh, yes. Question, second row. Um, I was just wondering, like, what inspired Charlie's background and, like, childhood? And how did that, like, influence his relationships? Uh, what inspired Charlie's uh, childhood? Charlie was a combination of my own childhood growing up in Pittsburgh and stories and anecdotes of people that I've collected over the years, just my dear friends, <clears throat> people that have been to, to, through bad things and also good things, you know, um, Patrick, the character of Patrick, whom you referenced back there, um, you know, he was an amalgam of some people that I knew, um, most notably uh, a guy named Neil Glick, a uh, guy that I knew in college, um, who I saw literally yesterday in Washington, D.C. Um, that's where he lives with his husband, Boone. So I was there, um, so that was Patrick. Uh, Sam was a bunch of different people. Um, and in terms of Charlie's childhood, yeah, a lot of it was just growing up. A lot of it was invention. Because what I have found, I'll tell you this, it's really interesting. Like, if I told all the truth, I would actually find it in a strange way less honest than just mixing in just enough fiction to set yourself free to kind of, you know what I mean? Like, most of the really intense things that happened to Charlie in terms of well, his drugs and all the other things, that was stuff that I either experienced personally or witnessed from about ninth grade through senior year of college. I took about eight years um, and just compacted it into one year. Um, and uh, so yeah, that, that was that. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, so it, it's a very, very personal book to me, but oddly, this is what's really strange, even when you're doing genre, so is Imaginary Friend. It, it, because of the things like the Mary Catherine McNeil stuff, I just take these like images and things that have interested in me, and I put it together, and I'm always hoping to take an audience or, or a reader from a place of like, you know, whether maybe they're starting in despair or the things that are bad. And then by the end that there's catharsis or at the end there is redemption or empowerment because, you know, I just believe in that. I believe that how cool is it to, you know, it's like when I wrote the line, we accept the love we think we deserve. I wrote it for myself first, but also it was like, oh yeah, you can apply that whether it's love of romantic or love of self or friend or for, uh, getting rid of a frenemy or things like that. I like to do that. I like to take the vulnerability of a childhood or the vulnerability of adolescence and then showing a blueprint about how, how you can kind of get out of the woods. Stephen, we have a question up on the mezzanine. Oh, wow. Hello. Hello. I'm very nervous because this is a huge honor to be here, and I want to thank you also for writing Perks. Thank um, you. I'm also a high school English teacher. Shout out. That's great. <laughs> and it's really wonderful because I'm getting a lot of still students reading perks all the time they still love it that's amazing it still resonates with everyone thank you um, and i read it first when i was 16 i'm now 37 um it still impacts me in the same way and there's a line specifically that really means a lot to me which is i feel infinite and i was very curious if that was sort of your first line of that book or how that line came to be because that line has meant a lot to me throughout my life in many ways and my husband actually wrote it on a paper for a locket when we got married like it's oh, really wow. special um and That's I just, fantastic. i'm very curious about that that line came from thank you and that and, and thank you for teaching so god bless you for that mm -hmm. one and uh you know um 
Uh, and by the way, they should pay you a million dollars a year. I'm just going to say that right now. Um, so, so that line, I feel infinite. You know, Perks is really interesting. So I'm 26 years old. I go through a bad breakup and I start writing it. And, and it just poured out of me. Dear friend, like it was it's one morning, it's a Saturday morning, I'll never forget it. Dear friend, I'm writing to you because she said that you listen and understand and didn't. And it just, that voice it just happened. So the line came out of just, I just kept moving forward. It, I didn't plan it. Perks even way even more than this one just came out of this idea of, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, just what's going to happen next. And I just became enthralled. And, and when I got to that moment in the tunnel, because, you know, it's the Fort Pitt Tunnel in Pittsburgh. If you've never done it, do it at night is the most amazing thing to drive through that thing and see the city. I did a good job in my movie. You could never film it. You With IMAX 3D, you couldn't capture what it really feels like. Um, and I thought, what does it feel like? It feels infinite. It just it just happened. you know. And I didn't really recognize... This is it was interesting. When I wrote, we accept the love we think we deserve, I knew right away that was a really good line. I didn't know, and in this moment, I swear we were infinite, was all that good um, until later. And then I read it, and I went... I kept going, God, why are they picking that line? Meaning my publishers. Why are they using that as like a blur? I didn't, I didn't feel it the way that other people felt it. And then later, when I came to it, when I was writing the screenplay for a Perks movie, I went, oh, wow, that's kind of the best line in the movie. So that's why I made it at the end of the movie. Because it's like, I can't do better than that line. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's where yeah, it just kind of happened. Yeah, sure. So we have time for just a couple more questions up here to the right. Hi, uh, another English teacher. Hello, fellow Hello. English teachers. Um, I also read this book in high school, and now I'm lucky enough to actually teach my 10th graders this book. It's That's amazing. amazing. They love it, so thank you for that. Um, I'm curious about how you come up with the ideas for the titles of your book. At what point in the writing process do you decide what your books are going to be called? You know, it's amazing that you ask that because what I've found is if I have a good title before I write the book, I finish the book or finish the movie. If I, if I do untitled blanky blank, it, it never happens. I don't know what it is. So, all right, so Perks Being a Wallflower, this is how that title came about. I mean, I'm a senior in college. I started writing the book, but a very angry kid. It was Charlie was really angry at first, and it, nothing, it wasn't really working. I wrote 72 pages, and I got to, well, I guess that's one of the Perks of Being a Wallflower. And when I thought of that line, I said, oh, my God, that's, I wrote 72 pages for those six words. Mm. And, and, and hence why it took 20 years, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so, but, but the thing is, once I stumbled on it, I realized that that was what I was trying to get at, that the, that the angry kid I was writing about was not me. I was writing about that kid. Who's the wallflower? And thought about the wallflower. That was it. Imaginary friend came out of, you know, it was just this, uh, it's something that fascinated me ever since really The Shining, you know, because they talked about the invisible friend in that book. And so... Um, I don't know, it's just an interesting subject, and I just thought, imaginary friend, but as, kind of like with Dear Friend with Perks, it was a way of talking about these really interesting bonds that we have, whether it's now with social media, or like people that are great friends that I've never even met, or whatever, it's just so interesting to me. It's such a, it's part of our landscape now, that the idea of like, it's, going back to the Catholicism, or if you're sitting there and you're praying, are you praying, or are you talking to yourself? You know what I mean? And at some level, does it even matter? I mean, if, it, if it's soothing to you or whatever, or if it gets you in touch with some part of yourself. So I don't know. It's all kind of in there. So yeah, Imaginary Friend. And I have some other really good titles, and we'll, we'll see. I, I know what the title of the sequel is. I'll tell you that. Well, I won't tell you what it is. <laughs> it would give it away. It would give it away. I'll tell you after. You'll love it. Oh, great. Yeah. We're going to have our final question here to the left, Stephen. Oh, great. Hi. I hope 
hope this is a good one. So um, when I first read Perks, it didn't quite hit me. I, I didn't, I, I couldn't get it. It didn't strike true. But when I saw the movie, there was something about that visual medium that really made it hit in the way that it couldn't for me in Great. the written word. And I didn't realize that you were the director and you were trained in cinematography. Is there a switch that you have to do between the written word and filming it? Do you, I guess, use yeah. both? Or how does your training, your well, formal well, training influence? So, so what happened was when I write a book, I see it. You know what I mean? It's part of like, you know, I think I'm mildly dyslexic. I was never, I was never, uh, you know, um, diagnosed or whatever. It's just like, it's, but I think it was like, I always thought like in pictures, much more than like, like if, if I learned your name, I would learn it how I would spell it. And if I can't see your name, I can't remember it. It drives me crazy. I'm not here. I'm, I'm here. So it was kind of like that. Like if, if I wrote it, I would, I just see it in terms of pictures. And it was that simple. It's not, and, and, and I'm really lucky the fact that I found directing because screenwriting, I couldn't really do it. I had to see it all the way through. Then it really felt the way I, 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 I saw it in, on the page. Even though it wasn't, it wasn't exactly the way it was supposed to look. I can't, I can't, there's no budget for like, I'm, we, we shot uh, Perks in May and June. So all that, all the snow's fake and it's, all, you know, and, and so the, the way that I really wanted to shoot a bunch of kids on a sled going down a hill, couldn't do it. So you make compromises, but the feeling is the same. So it's kind of like that. Plus, you use casting and you use music and you use editing and other things to really evoke a feeling. It's really always about the feeling, you know? And it's also about communications like this. And this is what I was going to say earlier uh, before your question was, uh, it's, um, it's what I believe about art. And then I'm going to read, I'm gonna read um, something okay. for you. Um, I, I want to acknowledge somebody very, very important to me in this room. So the thing is, so I, as I've said, I'm from Pittsburgh, and and what's what my family is all kind of from there. We're from all different kinds of of, of you know. I'm from Upper Saint Clair. My my uh, grandparents they're from Duquesne, which is kind of steel town before all the steel mills uh, closed down. Um, I have Aunt Moreauville, Homestead. We're all over the place. And what's cool about Pittsburgh and what's cool about Pennsylvania is, you know, not even like politically, but like kind of like. We're pretty purple here, and it's really interesting. And, and every family is kind of purple here. And what I, I remember when I was doing the screenplay for Rent, and this is where I, I discovered it. It's like, okay, so here I, I, I remember, trust me, this is going somewhere. I remember seeing Rent in Broadway, and I was very moved, and there's, there's Angel, and, and oh, my God, you know, I'm not going to spoil it if you haven't seen it. Oh, Angel, and people are crying. And what's interesting is I would always look at an audience, and I'd say, wow, look at that lady. She's crying. And I see her husband right next to her like this. <laughs> and I was fascinated by that husband. And, and I know what the husband's thinking. Just pay your fucking rent. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? I, I do. Everybody in this audience does. Right? So when I was doing that screenplay, I created this thing that ultimately Chris Columbus didn't want to use, and, and that's fine. He was the director, and it was his prerogative to try to like, address that. And that came from a fundamental belief that I have, and I call it the Cousin Chucky principle. He, the cousin Ch so my cousin, he, is, he, is a he, he, was, he was in the Army. Um, you know, he's a, he's a prison guard in Eastern PA at, at what was, I think, is about to not be a supermax, but 
and and I, I we are we he hunts and he fishes and and he does civil war reenactments and I love him and I respect him. We couldn't be more different in like very superficial ways. But whenever I write something, this is true from Rent, and, and I'll do it with Dear Evan Hansen. I'll do everything else. Is I always write it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to write it so even if my cousin doesn't agree with this, that he will respect it, right? Because I love him and I want his respect. It's very important to me every time. And I have literally never had the opportunity in my entire career to say, ladies and gentlemen, my cousin Charles Anderson, my cousin Chucky is standing right there. And please wave, Chucky. (laughs) So anyway... You know, cousin Jackie would be like, "Just you know, come pay your fucking rent." You know what I mean? <laughs> and by the way, he's you know, because he does. So I love you, cousin, and thank you for driving out. And there's this beautiful daughter, Jackie. Hey, Jackie, how you doing? Um, so um, anyway, uh, er, segue to yeah, uh, yeah. I want to know this. The, 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 this here, here is surprise. The su- here's the surprise. Okay, this is the 20th anniversary of the Perks of Being a Wallflower book, <clears throat> and I'm so grateful to everybody over the years who has supported it and taught it. My God, even after you learned it in high school. And when the 20th anniversary edition was proposed by my publishers, I said, you know, I'm not, I don't want to just slap a sticker on it and just, you know, hope that somebody buys it. I was like, I want to use something with this opportunity. So I wrote a new letter. And it's my first Charlie letter in, in 20 years that I want to share with you because i got to tell you something. Over the years, I've received so many letters <clears throat> from people, and I know what this book is meant to I know what this book has meant to certain people. I was like, and I had a rare opportunity. So when you were when you were young, and I know that, that that the book didn't get you per se, but it got some people in this room. And I just wanted you to picture the next group of kids, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever. Um, and every uh, those in the room that know that the last line used to be, and I will believe the same about you, love always, Charlie. And then I wrote this, and I want to share this with you, and I'm very, very proud. And then I will happily sign everything that you bring. And this is a big, I will stay till the last, okay? So if you're here, I, if you can wait, I will sign your thing happily. And thank you deeply for being here. But I want to share this. Here it is. September 18th, my uh, anniversary, by the way. I love you, Liz. September 18th, 2012, dear friend, I haven't sent a letter to you for 20 years. I don't even know if this is still the right place to send it. But I'm going to send it anyway and hope that you find it. It would mean the world to me if you found it, because I want to say thank you. Years ago, there was a very sad kid who needed a whole lot of help, and writing to you was the beginning of that help. Whatever I've learned as an adult, I have never forgotten what it was like to be that kid, what it was like to feel like no one could understand these feelings because I couldn't understand them myself. I have not, never forgotten feeling sad or crazy or depressed or outside of my own self and my own body. And on the great days, I have never forgotten what it was like to be on those drives with those songs, with those beautiful people whom I still call friends. That kid wrote some letters and sent them out into the world to a stranger he had heard about. And then something amazing happened. You wrote back. I know I didn't enclose my real name or address, but somehow my letters were shared. People passed them around the way Patrick's poem was, Xeroxed and traded, whispered like a secret password. However it happened, it happened. You read my letters, and then some of you wrote back. You sent me letters. You sent letters to random addresses. Some of them were forwarded along to me. Maybe some of them were. I don't know if I got all of them, but I got enough of your letters to realize something extraordinary. 
And if you could see the boxes and boxes of letters that I've received for the last 20 years, you would know what I know once and for all, forever and always, you are not alone. Understand, friend, there are millions of us, millions of people who struggle with and overcome all sorts of problems. You would be shocked to know how many people understand exactly what you are going through. That doesn't mean that what you're going through is somehow less, meaningful, special, unique. On the contrary, it means that what you're going through is more. It is important. It deserves to be seen, spoken of, and understood. It is 20 years now, 20 years of receiving your letters. And I can't tell you how many times they've saved me that day or made me cry or laugh or believe or hope that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I can't tell you what it's like to read a letter from the young woman who was going to kill herself, read my letters, and decided not to. And she is now in her 30s. She's happily married. She has children. The dark time is over for her, just like it will pass for you. So if these words make sense, if you have known these stories yourself, if you've experienced or witnessed abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, if you have struggled with mental illness of any kind or love someone who does, if you are surrounded by those who call what you are different instead of beautiful, if your mind or body has cried out for peace and acknowledgement and understanding, just know you are part of an infinite family. The people who have been through terrible things and survived them. If you're reading these words, you won today. You're here. You are alive. You have options. You can wait out a bad situation. Move on. Fight back. Get up or get out. Break up. Call. Ask her or him out. Write that book. Write that song. Listen to the music. Take the drive. Take the chance and live. Whatever strategy you choose, you win. There are so many more of us than there will ever be of them. And we can find each other and we can help each other and we can talk to each other and we can build great lives. Happiness is not this thing for other people. It is for you. It is for me. It is for all of us. We all get an ending. Whether or not it's happy is up to us. That is my long way of saying thank you, dear friend. 20 years ago, a young man wrote some letters. He wrote them back. And a grown man was inspired to write again. So just in case this ends up being my last letter, I want to answer one question, the question I've been asked the most since your letters found their way to me. Whatever happened to Charlie? And I can tell you what happened to Charlie in three words. He made it, and so will you. Love always, Charlie. Thank you. So, um... I want to thank you so much. This is a very, very special, uh, uh, special event for me. I loved it. I love this store. I'll always come back. Um, and just thank you so much. I'll be right here. Um, and I'll sign whatever you have. It's an honor uh, uh, that you came out. And just thank you again, guys. It's really amazing. And thank you, sir. It's amazing. Great, thank great, you. great questions. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.